Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Vanessa Gomez Gonzalez with us. Vanessa is a ground software engineer with Capella Space. She has previously worked with NASA and also ESA as a software engineer. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thank you, Rachana. Thank you for having me. Vanessa, you have a background in software development, right? So can you talk about how you came into space? Can you talk about how what brought you into space? Well, I would love to be in space. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm bound to Earth right now. I will get there, but right now I'm in <laughs> on ground. But yeah, um, yes, I studied computer science in Spain. Um, I studied, I got a, a bachelor degree in, in computer science. Um, and I started my career uh, just working for other companies not related to space, like banking and financial financial services, uh, which is what, like half of my passion that is software. Um, and I love coding and I love whatever has to do with computers. Um, but I always had my other second passion that is space um, in the back of my mind. Um, so at that time, I was working in um, in United Kingdom, uh, and I keep on having this itch of, I want to work for a space uh, company. At that time, I didn't have NASA in mind. I thought it was something super difficult to achieve. And like, uh, that was not my my plans. I wanted something a bit more realistic, that it was uh, working for a space company in Europe, uh, ideally a European space agency. Um, so I realized that I, even though I had experience with software, I didn't have the uh, the background, the academic background for working uh, in space. So I studied a master degree in France, um, and that gave me the chance to have an inter- to, to do an internship at NASA in JPL. Um, and after that, the things continue uh, in NASA. And yeah, right now uh, I was working for NASA for well, I worked for the European Space Agency for a few months, and also for NASA for uh, eight eight years, around eight years. Um, but yeah, recently I joined Capella Space, so I'm working more uh, close to the private sector and the uh, satellites missions. So, wow, wow, that's uh, that's quite interesting. So, what is your role as a ground software engineer at Capella Space right now? Uh, so basically, I design tools. Um, I design, implement, maintain tools for uh, ground operations. Um, so there are always a team that is more in contact with the satellites that is pretty much telling the satellite what to do, how to do calibration, testing, etc. And my role is to make their lives easier and make tools that are um, easier to use than the ones that probably they have been using. Because sometimes when you... Uh, you launch several satellites, maybe you learn from the previous one. And then certain things need to change based on your learning lessons. Um, and then based on that, there's there might be a restructure of the code or a, a, a new layer of uh, interface, like a web development uh, versus some backend stuff that might be less comfortable for the team to use. So pretty much I'm just designing systems and uh, and. Uh, debugging stuff as well. Sometimes you find bugs in the code and you need to um, make sure that everything works properly and do some testing, quality assessment, etc. Yeah, basically that's my role right now. Okay, wow, interesting. Can you maybe talk about like a typical software life cycle, right, in space missions? 
on one end, we have the upstream uh, when you're building the satellite and the onboard data handling systems and de developing the software for it. And on the other hand, we have the area that you work in, the ground uh, data handling and the ground software systems, right? And how entwined are these two? And what is the typical life cycle of the software? Uh, well, the software or even the, the systems, um, they follow similar life cycles. Uh, I guess the basic, the more uh, high level structure would be to design and um, meet with the stakeholders uh, in this case. It's just us, but like in general, when you're designing a, a life cycle for a mission, uh, you need to f first um, define the requirements, design new technology if needed, uh, create basically like a proof of concept and prototypes to, to work with. And you can even start working with test beds and um, applying certain scripts and software and then try to see how um, they would work in real time in a real mission. But basically, once you get to the final design and it's been approved and discussed and all the risk has been assessed and uh, all the, basically the, the concept has been uh, developed, uh, you start fa fabricating the, the spacecraft or coding the software, um, implementing the services. Um, then you can just assemble uh, your code, the systems, um, do some integration and testing, um, the satellite or whatever spacecraft are we working on uh, is ready to launch. Um, and then we get to the next phase that is operations. And basically it's uh, making sure that the uh, spacecraft is doing what, you are, uh, what it's supposed to do and um, maintaining and sustaining the, the code and the systems. Um, to the end of the mission once uh, it gets to that part. But there are also processing um, systems. So uh, I can give you an example of uh, when I was working in a soil moisture uh, satellite uh, back in ESA. Um, there was a, there was a, when I started with them, the, the, the mission had already been run for in a couple of years. Uh, and we had, the team had learned things that uh, didn't know before. So we had to do a, a whole reprocessing of all the data to uh, account for those new findings. So for instance, um, there was um, uh, this knowledge that when there is a flood, uh, the ground is very moist um, around a river. So it's about to uh, get flooded, but we don't know yet. So you, with a regular camera, you cannot see uh, how saturated the, the, the soil is around a river. But with uh, this specific satellite that uh, measures soil moisture, you could actually see, oh, this river is about to flood. So you can warn people and you can just design systems for protecting the, um, uh, the villages near to this river, for instance. So it's a system of emergency. So when, uh, when we found these things, very um, much we had to do a, pro a complete reprocessing of all the data that we had to learn from, uh, yes, actually this river, when it, before flooding, it was this moist and create certain indexes that can help you measure in the, in the future and make sure that um, we have certain parameters that we can use in real life and could be used for um, emergency response and disaster prevention, things like that. So uh, pretty much the software um, is intended to... Um, 
for uh, on the side of uh, designing and implementing the system uh, to make the so the spacecraft do whatever you want it to do, and also the other side to analyze what you have obtained from that uh, spacecraft. In this case, it could be images or Earth observation, but in the case of, uh, for instance, Mars observation or the rover on Mars, etc., you can actually process all these images and try to figure out what you are seeing, and if you have rocks that are, have these specific geological uh, characteristics, etc. Oh, that's cool. Which software languages and what kind of software tools do you use for software development? Uh, the recent years, um, Python is very is becoming more and more common. Um, so, in general, in the past, especially for embedded systems, you use C. Um, C++ if you need more uh, high-level stuff, but mostly close to the uh, boarding systems is usually C. Um, when you want to design a more high-level tool, like something like um, uh, ground software operations, something that is not so connected to the hardware, uh, it's a good idea to use object-oriented programming. Um, you can use C++ or Java or something similar. Um, Recently, the, the last few years, it's becoming very, very popular that you have a backend uh, with Python. So you create web services, um, and then you have a like uh, on-site tool, like a web interface, for instance, with, with HTML and JavaScript that connects to this uh, API that you design in the backend and retrieves uh, information um, by uh, creating requests through sessions. Um, so that's kind of the most popular um, structure, not only in the space sector, in general, in, in, in any infrastructure system, uh, you can find this uh, pattern. Um, but yeah, of course, you always, especially with the, when it comes to space, you still need to maintain all systems. Uh, and those systems are sometimes uh, coded in really all <laughs> fashion, uh, maybe not in... Um, current missions because everything is it gets new and updated but there are, you still need to maintain software that is made in fortran or like really old-fashioned stuff and um and sometimes what you do is you still maintain the systems but you create like a layer of um of connection that is more user-friendly so you can do like a web-oriented system so you click a button instead of having to type the command for instance and it's not, you are not really redesigning the code, but basically you are creating like a layer to help you uh, be more comfortable with the, with the tool. Now there's, a, there's this trend of a lot of, uh, let's say, image processing. If we look at Earth observation satellites, there's this trend of a lot of uh, image processing moving from the ground to the satellite, right? There's a lot of uh, uh, FPGA-based onboard computing or GPU-based onboard computers, which are doing a lot of image processing using AI and other machine learning tools. Uh, so how would this impact the ground processing uh, segment? Uh, so in general, when, what you do up there in space is really not heavy computing. Uh, so you can have some GPU with basic uh, computer vision uh, capabilities, but most of the load of uh, image analysis tend to be on the, on the ground. Um, you can use services like supercomputing services or uh, in general, cloud-based systems are, uh, are well known to be more reliable and more um, have more space capabilities, more redundancy. So you can actually take advantage of the current systems um, for computer vision and, and 
machine learning or even artificial intelligence um, for basically to understand what you are seeing on ground. Um, but in space, sometimes you need a little bit of computer analysis. It's not uh, the the full capabilities, but at least to have a little bit. For instance, if you are doing, uh, you are designing a rover on Mars, um, you need to. Uh, it's not it's not feasible to have a two-way communication with the rover because there's a delay of uh, seven to forty minutes, something like that. Um, so if you say the rover, okay, go straight, but you. I don't know what's going to happen in in one mile. And then you need to design the rover with a little bit of artificial intelligence and uh, capabilities for obstacle avoidance and try to be able to navigate a little bit autonomously. Um, so that, for that, you need some computing vision capabilities, and that has to be embedded on the, on the rover. Um, the... Regular satellites that just do some capture images in, in around Earth that don't really require that much uh, advanced capabilities for image processing. So as long as they take the picture, send the picture to Earth, and here we are the ones who make sure that this picture shows what we wanted, uh, it's pretty much the the objective of, of a small satellite. Um, we don't really require that much uh, processing load uh, in the spacecraft itself. Interesting. Uh, I've always wondered about this, right? What's the best, uh, commercially speaking, what's the best turnaround time from, let's say, at t equal to zero, we commission a satellite to take a picture of some area on the Earth. And assuming it's in the vicinity of that, you know, it can reach that spot uh, in the next few minutes. It takes a picture and sends, transmits the image data to Earth and we process it because there are various levels of processing of an image. Uh, what's this turnaround time? Like, how real time is this? Well, it depends because sometimes uh, there needs to be some error validation and it requires also a little bit of making sure if a package has been, has, has been lost, maybe we need to retake the image, etc. But in general, uh, what we do is pretty much schedule the image taking um, to be taken at uh, certain coordinates. And that image can be processed uh, and taken at any given time. Uh, so you, if you schedule the image to be taken right now, you can have it in, a, in the next few minutes. So it's, it's pretty immediate in general, but uh, what it requires mostly is to make sure that you have a schedule the image to be taken at as any, any given time, any given location. And sometimes you have several images to be scheduled at the same time, so you also need to prioritize and you need to... Um, make sure that you get the image that you want to. So speaking of, uh, I mean, uh, a little bit about your background, right? So you worked uh, previously at NASA and you also worked at ESA. So can you talk about the difference? Of course, there's a difference in work culture. So can you perhaps talk about that? Um, yes, I guess the main difference uh, that comes to mind is the vacation. <laughs> it's like holidays in America, it's just five, like, 10 days per year, something like that. In Europe, it's something like 20, 30 days per year. So that's, that's something that uh, I miss a little bit from, from Europe, this culture of big vacation. Um, but in general, like I like both cultures. They have different things, but I like a little bit of everything. Um, like uh, it seems that it, well, that of course depends on the project. Uh, in NASA, there are projects that are classified. That is, is uh, there's a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy. 
Um, and there are others that are more research-based and don't require much bureaucracy in general. Uh, whereas in ISA, everything requires, even the small like research things, it requires bureaucracy, but not as strong as the classified in NASA, if that makes sense. So it's a little bit an average in between the two extremes. Um, uh, but everything requires reports and statistics and everything is very well measured. Um, performance, like uh, reports of like the quality data, of the images, things like that. Everything is measured and used for future missions to learn. Uh, and I like that. Um, when it comes to uh, the culture itself, I guess Europe has, um, is, I would say culturally, uh, more diverse in the sense that uh, Europe is, is, a, is a bunch of countries. So every country has their own culture, their own language. Um, it's, a, it's a bit more different than, I would say, states within the United States. Uh, because, yeah, of course, there's a very uh, different, different cultures between the East Coast and the West Coast and the middle of America. But um, at least you have the same language. So in a way, you can, it's easier to for the cultures to merge a little more. Whereas in Europe, I see these cultures are a bit more uh, defined. Uh, so that that gives the the agency a, a richness in in culture that is, I, I think, is pretty valuable. Um, but also NASA in the recent recent years is is becoming very diverse, especially because it's getting a lot of um, international uh, scientists. So that's also uh, another good point for NASA. Um, but in the sense that uh, how uh, how everything is um, interpreted, I, I guess I'm biased because I've only worked in NASA in California, and California uh, style is a bit different than other states. Um, so I would say in California, things are more relaxed and more, um, how would I say, like you don't require to be so formal in, uh, at work. You don't have to wear a suit or anything, whereas maybe in other uh, um, other uh, branches, it, that would be the case. Uh, but in Europe, it's more formal than California. But at the same time, I don't know if other <laughs> other centers, uh, things are a bit different. Um, but also I see um, one thing that I notice is that in Europe, um, uh, at least where I where I work, uh, it felt like there's a more uh, strong difference between your your job and your life. Um, so, for instance, people went to lunch and they start talking about the game last night or about the vacation plan or or family. Uh, whereas here, you go to the canteen at lunch and you see people with napkins designing prototypes uh, for a new concept of mission that they are thinking of. So basically, the uh, here I see the passion as more like a constant, uh, whereas there is like yeah they're very passionate about what they do, but at the same time they want to keep separate uh, their free time or their spare time, uh, so disconnecting a little bit um, from the from the job. So I kind of saw a little bit of difference there, but again that was my personal experience, and it could also be this specific center works this way or. Uh, like the culture is slightly different between centers, of course. Since you mentioned the difference in bureaucracy levels, right? Does it also translate to having any differences in terms of the approach to software design? You know, the, the design philosophy or the framework approach to the software framework between ESA and NASA? 
So it, it depends also the the project. Um, most of the time that I've been working at NASA, uh, it's been research. So it's not so connected to missions itself. It's not like um, something that is real time and you need to meet those deadlines like super strict because there is a window of opportunity that if you miss it, then you have to wait two years, for instance. That's, that was not the case on the, most of the projects that I've worked. Um, and it's pretty much about generating uh, research um, projects and studying different phases of other other research papers and basically double check that the results are valid and do more, go in the extra step. Um, the, those don't require as much bureaucracy. Of course, it's like there's stuff like funding and it, it, you need to be accountable what, for what you are doing, etc. But it's not as... Um, as much paperwork that you will require for a for a mission that actually goes to space and and do stuff there, and uh, that requires a lot of uh, more ha- more eyes to see that what you're doing is not dangerous, is 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 responsible. Research is a bit more open ended, so it, it doesn't uh, require as much paperwork. But still, uh, of course, you're generating reports and publications, so you need to also um, work with magazines and with, um, uh, with uh, publication agencies, things like that. So it's also a little bit, this, uh, that hasn't been my role. So dealing with uh, bureaucracy, I, as a software engineer, I am lucky that I don't have to deal with that that much as others, but still a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, also, what's uh, interesting is you've worked with NASA, with the government, essentially in the U.S., as well as the private sector, right? So um, I was wondering, how is uh, how tight or how impenetrable or friendly are the supply chains in the U.S.? Because, for instance, as far as I've seen in Europe, um, it's it's very difficult, let's say, even let's say if I'm a small, tiny German startup, it's very difficult for me to land the first contract with DLR, the German Space Agency, or with ESA. Right, because the supply chains are pretty much um, established, and there's a lot of heritage to them. How is it in the U.S.? So uh, it has a another layer of difficulty that is ITAR. So many many projects are very um, controlled by export control laws. So it's not that you can buy certain components uh, from China or things like that, because there is all these regulations that you need to be careful about um, not having some device that could be used for spy spy uses. Um, so there are a lot of things that need to be specifically controlled, and, and there's also a lot of bureaucracy bureaucracy coming from there. Um, but I would, with regards to to uh, contracts, there is a uh, like open grants that startups can apply for, like SBIR. Um, things like you, there are always opportunities. Of course, it's not easy for startup to land a contract with NASA. Um, but also bear in mind that this is a an industry that has a big, um, the unique client. So for space um, uh, companies, knowing that they can only work with maybe NASA, ESA is very limited. Um, so one other thing that more more and more startups are doing is to try to widen their uh, their client base. So for instance, Capella has uh, clients from all types of industries like um, 
uh, well, the main is defense is one um, uh, probably, but like uh, agriculture or um, or like fishing uh, or like geology, mining. All these things are, are potential clients that um, startups can work with. Um, and then it's, it's pretty common to have a for for a space uh, industry for a space a startup. Uh, uh, a client base, uh, it, it, you can have a very strong contract with NASA or you can have many different contracts with other companies. So uh, the second one is safer because it doesn't depend so much on grants, et cetera. But at the same time, it, it needs more work because you need to reach out uh, more people, et cetera. Okay. Okay, that's, uh, that's smart. So, so what's the next trend in ground hardware? Because the ground software runs on hardware. So is it, and you mentioned super commu- computing before. Uh, so what's the trend? Is it using a lot of, I don't know, FPGA-based or ASIC-based uh, technology? Or is it a lot of GPUs? Or how is the trend uh, in terms of that? Uh, in general, this, these days, um, there are companies like AWS that are working uh, very strongly with the with especially with space systems, because they realize that there are a lot of demand uh, with certain uh, companies that are using the same services. So cloud computing has become very popular and it can perform a lot of operations depending on the uh, requirement of the so of the software. But um, yeah, systems like AWS um, or like they have many different um, tools that. Software, uh, software industry can use and uh, have an abstract layer of uh, compu- computation uh, for those uh, requirements for a software for the downlink uh, images. Like they can uh, actually process them in a way that it's geolocated, for instance, or like they can add all these parameters uh, for you if uh, if you design the software in a way that can perform these operations. Um, so yeah, basically cloud-oriented. Like sometimes there are contracts with uh, uh, certain supercomputing services, um, but that's kind of like the next step. Uh, for I don't think there are many startups that reach the the level of um, AI or like really advanced ma- machine learning for for these things yet. Um, there might be something coming in the next few years, so we can keep an eye on. Um, artificial intelligence and computer vision uh, applied to space services. I'm sure there will be demand for that in the next uh, few years, but I guess uh, we're still, we're still starting. So we'll see. Uh, That would be, that would be quite interesting. Um, If if, let's say if AI or machine learning kicks off in the ground processing chain, right? How do you think everything would change? What are the areas right now that could really benefit from AI or machine learning? That's a good question, but I think uh, uh, so. It, for this specific tool, it will require a big constellation of satellites. Uh, right now, there are companies with plain image that they are doing that. Um, that they have like do- dozens of uh, satellites in the air. So that means that there is a full coverage uh, for many areas. They have const- there's always a satellite pointing at these areas uh, most of the time. The problem that those other companies have is that they they cannot see through clouds and at night, whereas uh, radar, that is the technology that they use in Capella, it 
it does um, it shows um, you, you can take images any given time. So uh, we're building a satellite network that will provide a lot of coverage uh, around Earth. So uh, I don't know how things will work in the future, but imagine that there are like hundreds of satellites, so there are always coverage in certain areas. So imagine that you want to, um, I don't know, provide services to, uh, I don't know, Amazon. <laughs> Amazon wants to know uh, how many cars are here because they want to put a, a warehouse. So they realize that actually a lot of people commute here and and they deliver packages here. So you might want to know. So you, you keep track in real time the amount of vehicles in a certain area. You know how crowded that area is. And maybe you can put like a, a I don't know, some shop there that addresses the needs. So pretty much is a way of studying the world and and make sure you understand your customer base and how they they interact with your facilities and then having like a measure of how crowded parking lots are you could do it like in a traditional fashion like a, with a, a camera in the parking lot or you can just use satellites that gives you higher coverage so if you have a more real-time uh, imaging uh, imaging base uh, you can also track down vehicles you can even use it for um, I don't know survival surveillance for uh, I don't know you there is a crime committed, and maybe you can keep track of the cars where who did that. Like, I don't know. There, I'm sure there are a lot of future applications uh, that we could use machine learning, and and for that, of course, you can keep all the images, um, uh, every single frame. But it's like huge uh, uh, information. So machine learning actually can give you like a more schematic way of tracking down things like vehicle people. Uh, how things implement uh, and how things correlate to one another. So that I, I think that's the kind of the future to try to not only see images of Earth but also uh, interpret these images in a, a more smart fashion. Amazon Web Services, right? So in 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 the US or with NASA in general, if they use Amazon Web Services. Then how is it in uh, at ESA or in Europe in general, right? Because there's a lot of concerns around data privacy, and cloud computing is uh, can I mean it can uh, people can be quite skeptical about cloud computing. How does ESA do all its ground processing, uh, ground data processing? So I haven't uh, last when I worked at ESA it was 2013, so it's been a while. Uh, so I'm not really sure how how much uh, do they use these systems. I know they use some AWS, but of course you're right that uh, data protection is huge in Europe. Um, so I know that they have a more um, specific layers of uh, of privacy uh, that they are not in the US. Um, but at the same time, they they just adapt their system. So I know that they they create their systems, their platforms to work. Uh, cloud-oriented systems. Um, I'm sure they still use the, some AWS, but probably not uh, with data that can be used um, against citizens. So pretty much the data protection uh, is oriented to to citizens. Um, so I, if it's like Earth observation and it's public information that is going to be out there anyways, I'm sure they can use like cloud computing services without so much worry. Um, but at the same time, they also have some protection that 
um, by, based on the data protection regulations. What skill set is needed to build a career in ground data processing? Or let's say a software engineer wants to get into this space. What skill set do they have to build? Uh, I would do like courses of computer vision or, uh, I mean, ideally you can do like a PhD based on um, image processing or computer vision. Um, but at the same time, sometimes it, there might be roles that they need to fill a role. And if you have like some basic courses, you can start working on these things and then just learning along the way. So sometimes it depends how uh, how this the the project needs uh, so much. Like you can just only need a little bit of computer vision to do some basic stuff. So you don't need like an expert. So I would suggest someone to do like some side courses or, or classes and some formal education in these fields and uh, in the parallel. Um, and then try to find for the, try, try to find the right opportunity. Um, but if someone is really passionate about it, I would suggest to study a master or a PhD in this specific field. And from what backgrounds do your colleagues or do other teammates in your team uh, come from? Mostly, uh, yeah, com- uh, computer science or systems engineering. Um, many different backgrounds, actually. And I've seen examples of uh, people from different disciplines. Some, some people have like a major in art. And things like that. Sometimes it's really useful to have a little bit of creative background. And it doesn't have to be like super formal education. Uh, it could be something parallel to your engineering uh, engineer career. But sometimes having something artsy is, is very beneficial for creativity. And um, I value that a lot. I, I noticed that people who have some music background or some drawing or something like that tend to think more outside the box. So I would suggest if people love engineering that's great like do it but at the same time if you can do something creative with your life in parallel it's only going to help you with your engineering skills wow do, do you have an arts major in your team uh n- not uh, major not in this team right now uh but i know people have studied stuff like artsy like music like piano when they were growing up and things like that wow okay so that's alongside uh engineering yeah. Yeah, I mean, art definitely opens up the mind, right? Mm-hmm. It makes us use both sides of the brain. So <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's really great. And which which all languages do you use, or which all languages? I'm asking this because there might be like a lot of you know students or young professionals, software with a software background, who are looking to get into the space. So which all software languages or tools do they have to uh, master? Uh, so I started my career with Java and I stayed with Java for many years. Uh, but then little by little, I had to uh, start working on different things because I joined a project and this project has things designed in C++ or things like that. But you learn those things along the way. So I would suggest people to learn whatever languages you, you study in, your, in college or your formal degree. Uh, and if you learn like a few languages that will give you an open mind to to learn new new ones and the like if you if you know Z then you can learn Ada pretty easily things like that so uh, as long as you know a little bit of one for uh, programming like sequential programming and then some orient, uh, object oriented and like if you learn a little bit of everything it would be really easy to to switch languages and 
And don't be afraid of learning a new language because they're, they look intimidating. The syntax is different and everything, but at the end of the day, they are not that, dif that different overall. As long as you have the structure in your mind on how workflows uh, work and how this, to design an algorithm, the language you use, you can always use Stack Overflow <laughs> if you don't remember how something is done. Um, so don't be scared of learning new languages. It can be a lot of fun. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I would suggest these days is um, Python might be the, the way to go to start. Um, you could use some Ruby, something like that. But languages change all the time. So what, what is fashion right now, it wouldn't be in five years. So um, I would just That's very true. Right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I would just start with something like Java, Python. Um, obviously, web development is really useful, especially to make uh, tools more visually appealing and, and nicer to interact with. Um, but yeah, basically, those, those languages would be, as long as just make some fun challenges online with coding exercises. And this can be a lot of fun to, to do. And like there are competitions and there are uh, a lot of things that you could do to learn. Um, on, on top of the languages that you might know, some people just use like um, challenge um, hackathons online or virtual hackathons, things like that. And it's a lot of fun. I would suggest everybody to try to learn many languages and just, um, just uh, focus on the ones that you need for work, but at the same time, just being open to other, to learning new things. Yeah, I mean, especially given the amount of resources online, free resources, it's quite easy to learn languages. And I also personally feel everyone who is an engineer or who works in an engineering project or with other engineers should learn Python or any other scripting languages because it just makes your life so much easier, right? Yeah, I really like uh, Google scripting uh, because you also can customize things for your day-to-day. -day. Like uh, I have spreadsheets with my tasks and then I send, I, I make them to send me emails as reminders. Like, And there are like so many things that you could do with the tools that you do every day and it's repetitive. And sometimes I, I find myself like trying to clean my inbox and it's huge. But if I have a, a system with a spreadsheet that automatically uh, dump all this information and classifies and... I've saved a lot of time by doing these things. And it's just things that is uh, just scripts that you can create at home and it's not that difficult to do. Oh, wow. Like, so can I, I can create a script to clean my in inbox and customize this cleaning? Yeah. So you can, uh, you can export a Gmail uh, a inbox uh, emails, like you dump, dump them into a spreadsheet and then you can do the spreadsheet can just classify by author or like you can you can do a lot of things uh, with the google scripts of course like i'm not talking about uh, like a virtual assistant or something like that that's kind of more advanced that what i'm talking about but little things that make like for instance uh, put color code your emails based on the uh, the priority or based on who sent the emails or so it's easier for you to see like a spreadsheet uh, with all the information at glance instead of having to go to your inbox email by email. That's an example of things that I do or something with things with the calendar. I also create my own uh, Google calendar version. So I, I put like um, the events are tinier and I can fit them more and I put tasks. Like, I, I don't know. It's a, I also am a big fan of um, planning and organization and I've done these things just for make my day-to-day -day easier. Um, 
But of course, this this is very personal. So everybody should customize their tools um, in their own way. And for that, coding is very helpful because coding actually helps you um, do things your own way. You can code for others, but <laughs> like you are the one who is going to use the system. It's better if you do it yourself. This is so awesome. I mean, I am a huge fan of, um, I, I run a lot of uh, such kind of um, scripts that make my life easier day to day, but I had no clue we can also do it with calendar and my Google inbox. That's, that's awesome. I'm going to start working on it. <laughs> this sounds so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can show you resources or uh, show you how to start, but it's, there are a lot of things that people don't know that you can do, especially with um, Google scripting. There's a lot of things that uh, are really cool to do. Wow. Wow. That's cool. This would make my life, oh God, so much easier. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. So if students or space enthusiasts or young professionals want to reach you, Vanessa, what's the best way to do so? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or I can share my email account. Um, but yeah, I'm always open to to advise people. And I have also many, many people reaching me, reaching out in LinkedIn. Um, and I always try to advise and I guess the most uh, common worry of people is the visa for people who work to work at NASA. And unfortunately, I don't have uh, that many resources to help with that. That's uh, that's a struggle for everyone. And it was for me and is for many people that I know. But if it's uh, any other advice that I can provide and every other um, help that I can be of, of course, uh, feel free to reach out. Um, I encourage people to to contact me and I will be able to help. Great. that's uh, That's been a fantastic discussion, Vanessa. You've shared a lot of uh, insights and the Google Scripts tip was really awesome. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for your time today and thanks for the lovely discussion. Thank you so much, Rohan. Have a good day. <laughs>